Eating healthy, living healthy, being healthy. This is the Holistic Keto Goddess Podcast. A podcast focused on holistic wellness and teaching you about incorporating the keto diet and lifestyle changes to achieve an energetic balance. Teaching you how to live now so you don't struggle to live later. And now, your host, Jessica Ankaya. Jessica here. Welcome back to another episode of Keto and Energetic Balance for You. Today I have Amanda Decker on the show and she is a nurse practitioner like me and she practices in Tennessee and we're going to talk about the keto diet. We're going to talk about fasting and maybe even touch on some of the resistance that we've had as a nurse practitioner. I'm going to mainly ask her some questions on how she deals with it in practice and then I'll also elaborate. So anyway, let's get started. So how are you doing today, Amanda? Doing quite well. Busy morning, but I'm doing well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> know how that goes. <laughs> um, so yeah, let's just get right down to it. So tell me, have you seen the keto diet as, as a nurse practitioner? And I know I have, but tell me, have you seen the keto diet really do wonders for people that have diabetes, hypertension, high cholesterol, and how often do you see that they get pulled off medications and just kind of talk, let's, let's start there and, and we'll talk about that first and then kind of go from there. Yeah. Yeah. So I've seen keto and low carb, so therapeutic carbohydrate restriction, all three different levels of it has greatly impacted patients in many ways. Diabetes is one of the main ones that I see in pre-diabetes as well. So when you're in that stage right before um, blood pressure, definitely we've seen people come off of blood pressure medicines. But one of the more surprising ones for me when I first started uh, using ketogenic therapies and carb restriction therapies in my patients was autoimmune conditions and migraines. So I've had multiple patients even get off of medications for like psoriatic arthritis and reduce medicines for things like lupus and rheumatoid arthritis, maybe not all the way off of those medicines, but definitely reduction. I myself has gotten, I've gotten off of my psoriasis medicine for the last year and a half by really being extra strict on my ketogenic diet. So I definitely have seen it. I continue to see it and it continues to surprise me how people have more and more improvement and things that I would have not even connected it with, um, which is kind of neat. It's, I mean, it's really neat, you know, to go the first 12 years of my practice and never remove a medicine from anybody. And then all of a sudden it's like a daily thing that I'm able to start reducing medicines and take people off. It's very, very rewarding. Um, yeah. But yeah. Have you had much experience with like insulin? Cause like I've even had people who have had diabetes for years and been able to get them off of insulin and back onto just oral medicines and further from that. I've had a little bit of experience with insulin. Mostly it's with, you know, I've had a, actually two, I had a few type one diabetics mm. who were on insulin and I, I didn't see them completely come off the insulin, but yeah. they lowered their requirements a lot. For sure. Most of my experience has been with oral hypoglycemics, and um, I always refer to a patient that I had in Florida who was an avid biker and mm -hmm. biked like 30 to 40 miles per day, and mm -hmm. he was eating whatever he wanted, whenever he wanted, <laughs> and, you know, I mean, he was biking, he's burning, I don't know, five, 600 or more calories a day, yeah. but it's like, I got his lab work back, his A1C was through the roof, you know, it was like seven point five, but anyway, I diagnosed him with type two diabetes mm -hmm. and I told him, you know, of course I put him on metformin and I told him, 
that, you know, he's going to have to change his diet. And I recommended a keto diet. And I also put him on, I think I put him on, um, not only met, metformin, but glyburide too. I mean, he was, I mean, he was, it was, it was, I think with his age, once he was around there, so somewhere around there anyway, just, this was like five years ago. So <laughs> it's been a minute. <laughs> yeah. It's been a minute, but, but yeah, anyways, bottom line is I put him on keto diet and he completely reversed his diabetes and he, yeah. I mean, he just, I had, I took him off both medications yeah. And so it just goes to show it doesn't matter like if you're how active you are, if you're an athlete and he wasn't super over, he was just a little overweight, but not by much, you know, not yeah. obese or anything. I mean, he ended up losing like 20 to 30 pounds, but yeah. So anyway, I really believe in the keto diet and I believe what you're, and I agree with you. I mean, I've seen, I've seen it do wonders, even with people with psoriasis or um, different sleep issues and different like muscle myalgias, that sort of thing. I've mm-hmm. seen it really, really do wonders for people. Yeah. Yeah. So back with the um, diabetes theme, one story that I like to tell a lot is I have a lady in her seventies that um, when I put her on the ketogenic diet, she was on a long acting insulin. She was on a GLP one. I think she was taking Trulicity. That's what she was taking. Yeah. Uh, people but, that. yeah. <laughs> Metformin and, uh, I won. She was not taking glyburide because they usually take people off glyburide if they're on insulin. It's just why make your pancreas push out more when you're already giving yourself insulin kind of thing. So I think she's on that triple therapy and she came in and she just like, I'm really, I'm tired of this. I don't want to be on all this medicine anymore. Plus I'm on Medicare and it cost me an arm and a leg to spend all this money. I was like, you know, years ago I went on a low carb diet, I went on the Atkins diet and I got off all my insulin and off all my meds and my, A1C was under perfect control. And then my doctor told me that I was going to kill myself if I continued to do that. And so I went off the diet and then here I was back on all my meds, back on my insulin, back on all this. And uh, it's like, well, you're not going to kill yourself. I'm not sure how you're killing yourself if you're getting rid of your diabetes, which is essentially what you're telling me that you did is you were able to control it just by what you were eating and your A1C was in a normal range. It's like, so why don't you try it again? She goes, really? I can? like, yeah. (laughs) let's go for it. Let's try it. You know, I'm a fan. Let's try it. (laughs) So within a month, she was back off her insulin. She was back off the metformin and we've got her Trulicity down to the absolute lowest dose. Um, She doesn't need it, but she said, I just feel better when I'm on it. Mm. Um, So I I don't know. And she's not, like I said, she's on the baby's dose. She went from the highest dose to the lowest dose. And I think it may be part of the, the mentality of I'm still diabetic or maybe controls her hunger a little bit more. Yeah. I'm not sure, but you know, yeah. it's amazing. She's been diabetic for over 30 years and been able to come back off of those medicines that she's been on for that, for that long. Yeah. I was going to say it's probably the hunger aspect with the Trulicity because mm-hmm. I've had a few patients that really have done well with their hunger being a lot less than what it normally is. But yeah. I always have seen that the side effect with that medication is nausea. That's the, and, and yeah. usually, you know, like you said, the lower doses, usually people are more tolerable to that. So, yeah. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about as far as a nurse practitioner and, and doing the keto diet or educating the patients on the keto diet. Have you gotten resistance from other physicians when maybe patients have told that other physician, oh, my nurse practitioner says to do the keto diet. Have you had any kind of resistance? And, and yeah, how here and there. 
Yeah, so the biggest resistance that I get still is from um, our local emergency room physicians and hospitalist groups. They just tell my patients that it's dangerous and that they shouldn't do it. They try to tell them that they have people coming in all the time with intestinal blockages because they're not eating any fiber, when in fact they're probably eating more fiber eating a ketogenic diet because all of their fiber is coming from non-starchy rough vegetables <laughs> and not processed, refined, crappy food. Um, you know, the hospitalists that just tell them it's going to affect their heart and that it's not safe for their heart, even though it decreases inflammation, raises good HDL, lowers triglyceride. So, you know, I'm not sure how that is, but that's where the biggest resistance was. My supervising physician, because we as nurse practitioners have to practice on, not under a physician, but in collaboration with the physician. Right. Um, and at first he was a little cautious. I mean, he, he's very relaxed and trust me and trust my judgment. Um, and he knew that I had gotten more advanced education, especially when it came to a ketogenic diet. But I think what helped that relationship there is um, I gave him a copy of the clinical guidelines for practicing low carb. So the low carb clinical guidelines put out by low carb USA and the, and the Society of Metabolic Health Practitioners. And that made him feel a little bit more comfortable just knowing, hey, there is clinical guidelines. There's proof with this. You know, um, I don't necessarily have to worry. But bigger than that, before I started really getting referrals from providers, because I get referrals for weight loss from my orthopedist, from my cardiologist, from my primary care people in my group from multiple different places, it's kind of like the proof is in the pudding kind of thing. They started seeing the results in the patients. And when they're seeing results with no negativity, it's really hard to argue with that. <laughs> That's right. That's what I always say. And so, and so they, they just say, well, go see her. She'll tell you how to do it right. I also learned that using keto is probably not the best terminology in all yeah. circles because it's become a four letter word. Um, and so it's much better to either call it therapeutic carbohydrate restriction or more importantly, I just phrase it as I'm telling people to eat whole foods. I'm telling them to eat real food. We want to prioritize our protein and fill the rest with non-starchy veggies. And they're like, yeah. oh, okay. <laughs> right. And that's exactly what I did. It's like, I don't use, yeah. I, I, I hardly ever use that word keto with my patients. Mm -hmm. Lower your carbs, you know, just yes. exactly what you're doing. You know, the, the same approach. And so, yeah. cause you're right. There's a stigma with that word with saying there the word keto. It really, there really is, especially in the medical community. But what can anyone say if lab values are looking good? What can yeah. anybody say? I mean, you, if someone's lab values completely turn around and their A1C is back in normal value, their cholesterol goes down, their HDLs are going up, you can't argue with that. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah that's very true. And uh, you know where I probably get the most pushback, and I don't know if you experience this much, but insurance. And it's not necessarily with ketogenic diet necessarily, yeah. but say you've got someone who has diabetes and their diabetes has been on their chart. Well, they lose weight and they get off their medicine, but diabetes is still on their chart. So for guidelines, I'm still supposed to have them on a statin. I'm still supposed to have them on an ACE inhibitor, which is a blood pressure medicine. I'm still supposed to do all these things to meet these guidelines, but they're essentially not diabetic anymore, but I can't take that out of their chart. So what actually ends up happening is my scores as a provider go down because my patients are not on all of these treatments. And so I'm a lower rated provider um, and get less quality bonuses and things of that nature because my patients are not on these medicines anymore, but they don't need them. So that's exactly. where I get more pushback is 
why do I, why give me some sort of diagnosis to say fixed it. <laughs> right. Right. And it's just, why are, why are, and, and I agree with you. It's like, why are we taxing their bodies with extra pharmaceuticals if they don't need it? And I did the same thing. I had pushback. I remember now, you know, I push pushback from insurances. Uh, well, well, they should be on the statin, you know, they're diabetic. Yeah. And even though the cholesterol is completely normal and it's, it's, they, the insurance dictates everything nowadays, yeah. unfortunately. Yeah. And, um, and, you know, but to me, it's like, I would rather be honest with myself and my patient. If I don't get like higher scores, then so what? <laughs> I mean, <Yeah. laughs> that's, that's fine. I mean, I would rather be honest and be truthful and be like, okay, you know what? You don't need this. You don't need to be on this. I'm, I'm not going to overtreat you. And, yeah. and so that's, I'm like you, I totally believe in that. So, yeah. 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 But then there's, you know, the fear on our side of things that if your scores are so low for so long, you can lose your credentialing with the insurance and then yeah. you can't accept that insurance anymore. So you're That's kind of right. stuck in this hard place. I mean, I still practice right. the way that I think is best for the patient, but it kind of stinks. And I hope it doesn't come to that point. It hasn't yet, but I hope, and I hope it doesn't. I know. I know. It seems, yeah, just more and more, more and more things are on the line and they dictate more and more. Yeah patient situations yeah. and scenarios. And it's just, it's unfortunate. It really is. So, yeah. but hopefully, you know, in the future, good things will come and, you know, yeah. we'll, we'll be able to prove that we the work we've done, because probably we put more work into it than anybody else did when they were just prescribing a drug, you know, the work and time that we put in explaining how to do the diet appropriately, oh. monitoring for safety, you know, all that education and stuff that goes behind it. A lot. Oh yeah. It takes, it does take a lot. And you think about in nurse practitioner school, and I know I, I never got a lot of dietary classes and <laughs> I had like one little nutrition class and it, and yeah. it talked about the low fat diet, yeah. you know, low, lower your car or calories and, and, you know, lower cholesterol and that, yeah. that kind of, you know, the ADA diet, you know, all of that. And it, it nothing, nothing else, nothing that really, truly, <laughs> truly works, but really, yeah. what really works. And, and so I've had to educate myself by reading books and listening to webinars and podcasts. I'm sure you've done the same thing, you know, as being yeah. in the low carb world and trying to help people. So when you are talking to your patients and you're putting them on a lower carb diet, like how many carbs do you emphasize total carbs or net carbs? What is your approach? Yeah. So it depends on the patient uh, for sure. So, you know, a lot of my time when I spend with them in that first visit is just getting to know them, getting to know their health history, how metabolically healthy they are. You know, someone who has diabetes is not going to tolerate nearly as many carbs as someone who is, um, overweight, but does not yet to have diabetes or heart disease or blood pressure issues. There are different levels on that spectrum. I try, and this may come as a surprise to you, but in the beginning, I try not to count carbs at all. Um, I try to focus on food quality and starting to understand which foods fall into which macronutrients. Um, you know, how I teach it is like, you know, we got carbohydrate, fat, and protein. Protein is going to help you keep your lean muscle mass. It's going to stabilize your insulin, stabilize your blood sugar, and it's going to stabilize your hunger. So we need to prioritize that protein. So every time you eat, start with the protein. Your protein doesn't need to be this little bitty palm of your hand. Go ahead and go for the whole big six, eight, 10 ounces of protein in that mealtime. Uh, and then 
don't fear the fat that is naturally occurring in your protein. So go ahead and have beef or pork or whatever type of protein you have. If the fat is naturally occurring, we're not going to fear that. Um, I do not encourage a lot of like the bulletproof coffees and adding butter to everything uh, unless they unless the person finds that they just need that for hunger and satiety and that type of thing. Or if they're doing a ketogenic diet for say seizure control or some other therapeutic use um, like Alzheimer's or things like that, then we may really ramp the fat up. Um, but for my general weight loss fat patients, um, fat reduction patients, I will say prioritize protein, don't fear the natural fat, and then let's learn the difference between non-starchy carbs and starchy carbs. And then the rest of your plate will add those non-starchy carbs in. Um, yeah. Now, if I find that we're hitting walls and we're not getting anywhere, then we might step back and use carb manager and count for a little while. I do encourage total carbs at that point, not net carbs, because I just think net carbs is too confusing. Can I have this or can I not have that? And products that have a lot of net carbs in them, in my opinion, still keep you hungry and keep you craving and wanting more because you're including a lot more sugar alcohols and things like that in those net carb products. So I always do total carbs. Someone who is got extreme metabolic syndrome, like um, hypertension, diabetes, high cholesterol, all of it, then I'm really going to encourage them to try to get under 30 grams of carbs, the closer to 20, the better. Um, if they are not that extreme, then I might back it up and say, all right, let's try to stay under 60. And if the patient's really resistant and they just are struggling to make those changes, I might say, okay, let's start with just trying to get to under 100. And if we get to under 100, that might be a great place to start and we can tweak from there, but it's a good starting point. So you got to meet your patients where they are sometimes. <laughs> I know, I know. I was just going to ask, well, what about those patients that do have metabolic type of issues, diabetes, um, you know, really serious metabolic syndrome, you know, the whole triad, all, all of this stuff, yeah. like better, better resistant and being like, well, I just can't do away with my oatmeal or... Yeah. <laughs> or, or, um, you know, just certain things that they're just, it's like, you know, I don't think they're going to change that. And so for yeah. me, and, and I'm sure that's how you are. It's like, okay, well, let's, let's start with trying to keep our carbs under a hundred or, you know, maybe yeah. not eliminate that oatmeal, but maybe eliminate all those potatoes that you're having that meat and potatoes yeah. that you're having at night, <laughs> yeah. you know, or maybe just have like a quarter of a cup of oatmeal and just try to change portions around first and then yeah. work your way to limiting the carbs even more restricting them, mm -hmm. you know, just getting, and that's probably what you kind of do. Just, just yeah. Little, yeah. Little, Hopefully as the patient down. feels better, they want to move more in that direction. Um, right. We also use this strategy in our clinic of fix one meal. Can you fix mm -hmm. breakfast? Can you give me just a you know, protein and carb-free breakfast and then keep your other meals the same. And then maybe we can move into a low carb breakfast and a low carb lunch and save dinner for like the last one on there. So different ways of doing it. Yeah, there is, there is. And you're right. Everybody's different and you have to tailor your approach to that individual. So it's just, yeah. everything's, everything's different. Do you put your diabetics on fasting protocols? I mean, type, obviously type ones, I don't, I, I'm not mm. a fan of doing, but type twos, like, do you, what, what, how do you, how do you put them on fasting? Like, what do you do? Yeah. Them? Yeah. So, um, I highly encourage time restricted eating with all of my patients, actually not Good. even just my diabetics, because I think our bodies were not designed to eat 24 seven. And that's kind of part of Absolutely. the things that have led to, um, our obesity epidemic that we have. So, um, I encourage first to just start with three meals, three meals a day and don't snack in between. 
and give me at least a 12 hour fast at night. So give me a minimum of a 12 hour fast. If you're done eating at eight, don't start eating until eight o'clock the next morning. And then with their meals, I try to give them even windows to have. So I'm like 60 to 90 minute windows. And that's all you have for breakfast and lunch and dinner. And then you're going to not eat or drink anything but water, black coffee or unsweet tea in between. And once they get adjusted to that, then I try to move them into more of a 16-8 pattern, if possible, getting down to two meals a day in an eight-hour window, still trying to do those meals in about a 90-minute time frame at most, just because I don't want them eating continuously for eight hours, still just kind of two little windows inside your eight-hour windows. Um, occasionally when I have a, that's most of my patients, that's as far as they're going to push it. But I have a few that have tiptoed even further. Um, we've done some 24-hour fast, which I would, I don't generally recommend that more than once a week. Uh, and I usually tell people eat your dinner and then fast all the way until dinner the next night to get your 24 hours. So you're not having a calendar day without a meal. It seems a little bit easier to kind of navigate through that. Um, I have a few patients that have done more like 72 hour fast. They've found that that's been the avenue for them that's worked really well. Um, I find they have to be on a low carb diet for a while before they can do that with any sort of ease. That it's a struggle if there's somebody starts to try to fast in the beginning of their journey, they're going to crash and fail because they're so reliant on the sugar and the carbohydrate for the fuel that they're crashing and tanking all the time. Uh, but if you get more in that fat adapted, so your body's used to tipping in and burning its own fat for fuel instead of sugar for fuel, then it's easier to kind of fast longer. And you know, if my patients want to do a 72 hour fast, I recommend that probably no more than uh, once a month. Yeah. 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 And so the diabetic patients that are doing a 72 hour fast, what type two diabetics, of course, <laughs> what sure. is your advice? And I'm sure it's similar to what I, what, what's your advice with the, the oral hypoglycemics? Yeah. So we're probably going to hold, we're mm -hmm. definitely going to hold anything like a sulfonylurea to hold anything insulin, but most of the time, by the time they get to that type of fasting, they're off of insulin at that point already, just from restricting carbs and from mm -hmm. doing more of a time restricted eating. So the insulin is not something I have to worry as much about. Um, I'm even okay with them holding their metformin and their, um, GLP ones at that point. So like the Tulicity, Victosa, things of that nature. It's like, if you're not going to eat and you're going to be just consuming water and salt water, basically, I'm completely fine with you holding those medicines during that fast. Right. Right. And that's, that's where I was too. That's what, of course mm -hmm. I wasn't doing the 72 hour, but that's a great idea. I was telling patients to do, well, do like the 12 hour and then increase mm -hmm. the 13 or 13 hour the following week and, and that sort of thing. So mm -hmm. yeah. And yeah, so, definitely step it up. Step it the up. Bigger yeah. Thing too, yeah. Step it up. Uh, but the bigger thing when I start teaching longer fast to patients would be don't go crazy your meal before you start your fast. Like if you think, oh my goodness, I'm not going to eat for this amount of time and you're just mm -hmm. shoving in as much as you can in that meal before, that first 24 hours is going to be a pain. So eat normal, <laughs> eat <laughs> food you normally would eat. If you want to have a little bit higher on your protein source, okay, but we're not just going to get in everything we can right before because you're going to hate yourself the next day. And then two, when you're breaking your fast, let's break it slowly. Let's start with a little bit of broth, you know, some very light protein and just kind of eat your way back into it. Exactly. And I've made that mistake before too, where I've eaten way too much before I've taken on a fast. And I'm like, why did I do that? Like what's wrong yeah. with me? Oh my God. And I end up not being able to fast the next day. Yeah. I, yeah. yeah. Uh, so I personally, I do know that, that, 
<laughs> that mistake. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, fasting's really good. I think it's, it's very healing. And, um, have you read Dr. Jason Fung and Jimmy Moore's book, the complete guide to fasting? I've not read that one. I've read several others, but not that one. Yeah. It's really good. Let's talk about healing diabetics mm-hmm. by putting on these long fasts for type two diabetics, diabetics, mm-hmm. of course, for putting them on these long fasts for like seven to 14 days or more. Yeah. I just think it's yeah. incredible. Like I, I just love that concept. I mean, and it's just, yeah. So, yeah. yeah. My assumption would be, and you can tell me since you've read that is that it's giving the pancreas a break. Exactly. Um, kind of like, you know, I'm, we were told, or I was told earlier in my career, when you've got someone with the new diabetes diagnosis type two, uh, really high A1C, you might have to put them on insulin for a little while just to give their pancreas a break. And then you can pull them back off and use oral medicines, but their pancreas has been overstressed for so long that it it's right. kind of freaking out and not working. So I would think fasting is doing the same thing. My hypothesis is that you're resting your pancreas because you're not taxing it with anything food wise. So you're giving it a break so it can kind of kick back in and start working again. And then the exactly. autophagy side of it where it's healing cells and repairing yeah. the body. I could, I could definitely see that. Yeah. There's multifacets to the healing that it's doing by, by them doing that. Mm-hmm. And I just, I just think it's wonderful. And I think I'm sure the biggest challenge is, is definitely hunger mm-hmm. um, when it comes to that. And, and um, so you just have to figure out different ways to manage. And mm-hmm. um, I know that in that book, they talk about broth. You mm-hmm. know, what are your thoughts about broth? I mean, the broth that the recipe that they have at the end of the book, it doesn't really, it's like put vegetables in it. It's not really, mm-hmm. you know, try to keep the protein content down mm-hmm. because a lot of protein could uh, interfere with autophagy. Mm-hmm. So what is your thoughts about when you're telling patients to fast I mean do you tell them to restrict the protein and and, and that or don't do any bone broths and what is yeah so I think it's more of a gradual thing so in the beginning when they call it your fasting muscle a lot with and Jason Fung's kind of circle that (laughs) (laughs) in the beginning you may need more broth and pickle juice and things like that to kind of Mm -hmm. ease you through and get you through but the more time to attempt it and the longer you go it becomes a little bit easier and a little bit easier so If doing broth helps the person or the patient um, get through their first 24, 48, 72 hour fast, great. And maybe next time they can go longer without it. And then the next time, maybe they don't even need it. So I I think it's a tool and it's, I think you're still going to get benefit even if using broth or you're maybe going to get the whole benefit, maybe not, but you're going to see benefit and it's going to help you grow that fasting muscle so that the next time you can go further. Exactly. And that's how I usually, that's how I fast. It's, it's so hard for me to do a water fast. Um, have you done one? Have you done a water fast? Uh, I just, I think the longest that I've been is like 40, no, 50 hours is about as far as, and I'm like, I'm tapping out. I'm done. <laughs> I hate hunger. I hate it. <laughs> I do too. It's so difficult. I, I just, yeah. I'm so far, I don't have sagging skin and too many wrinkles. So, uh, you know, <laughs> it's, yeah, it's, it's rough. It's rough. Hunger is, is, is rough. And, you know, and I know it comes in waves and day two, it usually peaks and, and, and then it, it plateaus. It doesn't like get worse and worse. And then by day three or four, it goes away. But, you know, for me, I haven't gotten past day four with fasting with yeah. I've gone four yeah. days with fasting. And yeah. what I did was coffee and I did 
of course the broth and you know the low protein broth with just vegetables and I didn't eat mm. the vegetables I strained them <laughs> yeah and strained them out and that's all I did I I couldn't go past that it's just I yeah and and I think I ended it just psychologically because I'm like man you know I just I think I need to eat or I felt a little too yeah. hunger but if I'm sure if I'd have kept going maybe the hunger would have completely gone away but. maybe you might have hit that fasting high or one up but I'm going to blame my kids because if we still have to cook for them and smell the food oh. and prep the food. I think if I didn't have them, I could probably fast longer. But every <laughs> one time I was trying to do, I was just trying to do a 24 hour fast and I was making my daughter's um, peanut butter sandwich that she was making and I licked the spoon and I was like, crap it. <laughs> just out of habit. It's like, I'm, you guys, you're ruining me. <laughs> oh, I know it. That is my thing too. It's like, I'm making food for my, my kids. And then all of a sudden I just like, like they, they'll, they'll ask for stuff all the time. Like I want a peanut butter yeah. sandwich, peanut butter and jelly sandwich, or I yeah. want, you know, a, a wrap and, and I'll put the wraps on the, on the stove and I'll cook yeah. them and put it in coconut oil and it's heating up. And I'm like, Oh, <laughs> if, I, if I didn't have to cook for my kids, I probably could go a lot longer. Uh -huh. You're so right. And that is such a good yeah. point, you know? So it's like, what do you do? Like what, what, what helps you if you're fasting and you're dealing with kids? I mean, what I do is I just cook and then I'll just try to leave the leave as soon as possible after I'm done cooking or yeah, outside yeah. so I, mean, I don't smell it. <laughs> I couldn't grill them more food. That's the way it is outside. So I don't have to smell it, but my husband helps some. Um, so okay. he'll do some of the meal prep, something if I'm fasting and he's not, that is oh, yeah. helpful. That is um, helpful. I, but I don't sit and watch them eat that. I, mm -mm. I can't mm. sit and watch them eat when I'm fasting because I'm just going to want to eat it. Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 I like oh, the husband that. idea. Maybe that's what we'll start doing if we won't, because we, when we fast, we usually fast together, but maybe what we'll mm -hmm. do is just switch off. Okay. You get to cook tonight while I go outside. And cook. <laughs> yeah. And <laughs> you get to smell the delicious food and I'll, yeah. Mm -hmm. and, um, yeah. So yeah. I'll just, I guess you could also cook them things that you really hate. <laughs> If it's not food that entices you, yeah. make it on those nights that you're fasting. But yeah, I try not to give my kids a lot of junk foods. I don't either. I know my kids eat pretty healthy. And so usually all the food that they like, I like, I love. And I, um, so anyway, it's, it's difficult, but <laughs> yeah. I still like fasting though. I still like the way it makes me feel despite, mm -hmm. you know, the hunger pangs. And so I still, I still do it. You know, I mainly try to just do the intermittent fasting though, because if I do too much, it gets mm -hmm. little, sometimes I get a little cranky, but I, you know, the last mm -hmm. long fast that I did was, was probably, I did a 36 hour last month. And then I did one in May. I did, well, I did a four day in May. So anyway, yeah, <laughs> you have to spread them out. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Your body needs some recovery time. <laughs> That's right. You're, you're, you're right. You're right. So as far as I, well, let me kind of talk a little bit more about fasting and then we'll wrap it up. So as far as fasting and, and educating your patients on fasting, have you gotten resistance and with fasting as well, like with keto, have, has anyone said anything to you or have you been? Yeah, no, not really. Because, um, I mean, the number one argument against fasting is that you might lose muscle mass, I think is kind of the, yeah. one of the main things, um, or that it might be unsafe on medicines. But if you're doing it under the care of a provider, 
I think you're, you're mitigating those safety concerns there. Um, as far as the muscle mass, I am fortunate enough to have a bioimpedance scale here that can kind of measure your muscle mass. Now, it's not 100% accurate, but, you know, if you're comparing scale reading to scale reading, you're going to be able to watch that muscle mass. Um, and I have a patient that routinely does a 72-hour fast once a month, and she's been doing that for two years now. That's her thing. It helps her stay on track. Um, so great. And she's not lost any muscle from the beginning of her health journey to now. And she's down by over a hundred pounds on her mm. weight loss and has not lost any muscle mass. So I don't, I think I mitigate some of those arguments just by having the data points of don't argue with something that I have data to show you that is an invalid is, argument. Right. And there is data to that. I, I just wrote, I just did an article on that, how fasting will preserve your lean muscle mass. Mm -hmm. you know, so it, there is research that backs that. So yeah, I think it's, yeah. I think that's, that's great. And so she does a 72 hour water fast. Does she mm -hmm. do strict water fast mm -hmm. and keto in, and keto in between? Yeah, she stays ketogenic most of the time. Um, she'll have sometimes where she'll go off, but not go high carbs. So she'll probably, she may mm -hmm. take her carbs up to like 60 or 80 during like a family weekend uh, or something like that. And then she'll yeah. cycle back down to a, a lower carb, which you know, I do that too in my own personal journey. I'll have times to wear vacation, okay? Then I'm probably going <laughs> to relax a little bit, have about 80 grams of carbs. I might, oh my gosh, I might have a hush puppy at the restaurant. <laughs> Just one. Just one. But then, you know, when I come back from vacation, I almost go carnivore for a week or so because I feel like that kind of resets me. Um, right. And then I might kind of cycle in and out. So you just kind of have to pay attention to your own body and how it responds to different things and what you can allow for. So I have something for you then. Cheat days. <laughs> Cheat days I find very difficult to coach patients through because I know cheat days derails the best intentions. Um, and I try to encourage patients not to have cheat days. I'm like, if you're going to choose a dietary excursion, be very specific plan. I'm going to eat it on this day at this time in this amount. And then I'm right back on it. But what is your experience with cheat days in patients on ketogenic diets and how that changes um, their hunger levels, how it changes their progress? Do you allow your patients with cheat days? Do you discourage them? Yeah, um, you know, it, it just depends. It, if, if a patient can cheat one time, like say they have a donut mm -hmm. and they can be done with that, and say, okay, well, I, I had my donut uh, tomorrow. I'm getting right back to a strict keto regimen. Mm -hmm. Then I'm like, okay, that's okay. It's okay that you did that. But I don't personally sit there and say, okay, you're allowed a cheat day. Because mm -hmm. if you do that, then people are like, oh, well, you know, they're really going to take it to extreme. Like I'm going to really have me a cheat day. I'm going to go out and get a couple donuts. And <laughs> if mm -hmm. I could you know, they'll, they'll just go hog wild. So I don't yeah. say that up front, but if they do and they admit to it to me that, that that's what they did, then I'm like, okay, well, did you learn from it? Did you feel good? Did you get right back on keto the next day and, and yeah. back into ketosis? Yeah. Okay. Well then mm -hmm. just try not to do that. But yeah, I think in the back of our mind, and I'm sure you feel this way too, you know, that someone's going to cheat because yeah. it's very difficult to stay strict I mean, a lot of people can, but there's people that, that may need that. There's a, there's like that willpower yeah. aspect. So I, I don't know. What are your yeah. thoughts? 
I, I just find it's very dangerous territory um, because yeah. a lot of people who are coming to the ketogenic diet to cure diabetes or obesity right. or anything like that, they struggle with food addiction and they don't really view it as food addiction at first um, until they start trying to remove those foods and see how strong those cravings are and the withdrawal that they have from not eating those things. And if they do cheat, how it just triggers them to almost obsess about that food and to keep going back for it. And I don't know, like I have that few random patients that, you know, can have, like you said, that one donut and then be right back on track. Right. But the bulk of my patients, it seems like it just sets them off. And then it's like right. two to three weeks to get back on track. And they come right. in and like, I don't know how to get back on track. It, do, it wasn't this hard the first time that I quit, but I went on vacation and I ate all this stuff. And now I, I can't stop eating. I, I know. know. It's hard. That's why, that's why I, yeah, you're right. There are a few that are like, okay, can like say me or you, or even some other people that can just, okay, that's, that's it. I don't, I don't want to eat that anymore, but mm -hmm. you're right. A lot of them are, will just keep going on this binge. And so that's why I, I just, I'm not one to encourage it either, but it's like, mm -hmm. you know, if, if they can be done with it, then great. But you, you're right. A lot of them can't. So it, it's a very yeah. touchy thing. And yeah, um, I, yeah you know, it, it's, it's just a fine line because it's like you don't want to get so mad at yourself that you're like, <laughs> just like, ah, oh, I can't believe you did that. And then you just keep mm -hmm. doing it because you feel so down that you did it. And you don't yeah. want to tell a patient that like, ah, oh, you know, and and then they just get so down and discouraged that forget it. I'm, I don't care anymore. I'm, I'm done. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm going to eat whatever <laughs> I want. <laughs> so mm -hmm. yeah, it's, it's difficult. Yeah. It's, it is. It is. We need something. I, I feel like I need a counselor as part of my clinic. It's more than I need um, even myself yeah. sometimes, just someone to help them work through their food issues and their connection to food, the emotional connections to food that's there. Yeah. And it definitely is an emotional connection. It's an addiction in itself, just like alcohol or smoking or anything else. Food is an addiction. It really is. I mean, so it's, it's great for us, but it's, it could be bad for us at the same time. So, yeah. Yeah. And, um, do you advise people against weighing themselves just have them weigh at your clinic? Cause that's, um, I do that a little bit individualized as well. I do encourage probably at least once a week to hop on the scale to make sure that you're seeing yourself. If you want to weigh every day and it doesn't frustrate you, that's fine. But um, I try to tell people up front, you know, yeah. you may have a day where you gain two pounds, especially if it's a female right before your menstrual cycle, you may gain two pounds. But then as soon as your cycle's over, guess what? You're going to lose that two pounds plus more. I have some ladies in particular that start to obsess about the scale and it actually derails their diet plan if they're constantly watching the scale. So I have some that I ask, don't, don't weigh. Just yeah. come in and weigh at my clinic at your appointment and stay off the scale, hide your scale, because I want you to just focus on the food that you're eating, when you're eating it, and how you're feeling. And that's all I want you to focus on. That's right. Yeah, there's that psychological aspect of, of weighing yourself mm -hmm. that I was, I, I'm the same way. I'm like, okay, just once a week, that's it. Or if you don't even want to do that, just wait when you come in. And, um, you know, and it's funny, people always get mad. Oh, your scale's 10 pounds heavier than mine. <laughs> like, yeah, you have clothes on and you drink something. <laughs> when you were at home, you were naked and you just peed and got out of bed. <laughs> 
know. People get so mad. Like, oh, yeah. 10 pounds heavier. Well, I'm sorry. What do you, what do you want me to do? You know? Yeah. But, um, you know, I could subtract two pounds for clothes and maybe mm-hmm. breakfast or. <laughs> More. I just don't compare your home scale to your scale. Compare my scale to my scale. And we'll That's just right. look at overall how many pounds you lost. That's right. Exactly. And that's what I said too. What I always was saying, that's what I would always say. So and still say, so anyways, well, that seems like that's about it. Amanda, thank you so much. This has been great. Well, we should definitely collaborate more and um, yeah. yeah. And so if any of you want to find her, she is on social media, she's on Facebook and as Amanda Decker, and, it's um, actually, I think you can use the same handle that I do for Twitter, the at Decker Less Carbs. You should be able Decker to search and find it that way. Mm-hmm. Okay, wonderful. And then she's also on Twitter at, at Decker Less Carbs. So mm-hmm. give her a follow. And she's got a lot of inspiring stuff that she puts on uh, Twitter that I've followed her on. And um, so, anyways, I think that's about it. Anything else? I think. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you very much. All right. Well, we'll, we'll talk soon. Yeah, take care. Take care. Bye-bye. This has been the Holistic Keto Goddess Podcast with Jessica Ankaya. Follow the Holistic Keto Goddess on social media like Pinterest, Twitter, and Facebook. If you have any questions about today's show or how you can live a healthier life, visit HolisticKetoGoddess.com and go more in-depth with blogs and healthy living resources. Like, share, subscribe, and listen wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Thank you for listening to the Holistic Keto Goddess Podcast with Jessica Ankaya.